Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined today by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Rooney, Toe the Rubber. Episode 263 on the network. Uh, Before we get to Jim and and introduce him and say hello, just want to say thank you to our faithful audience, 43,000 plus in 74 countries. Continue to bring us support every week. Make sure you download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Give Jim five stars this week. Write some nice comments under there and and, uh, keep engaging us. We uh, do this for you. And we want to make sure that we have, we feel like we have a very sophisticated audience, very intelligent audience, and we try to bring it every week, especially with this show, Toe the Rubber. But uh, with that, uh, Jim, welcome back to your show. I had a couple of warm-up questions. I'll get to you in a second, but the audience knows you got a little basketball background. They know about you, you know, as a two-sporter growing up. Um, probably could have played both sports in college if, if you saw fit and know that your wife was a tremendous college basketball player as well. And uh, But w- welcome back to your show. Good morning here. Thanks, Dave. Happy to be here. Yeah, and I've enjoyed your posts every week, uh, and the posts kind of give me a clue as to what you're what you're thinking, where your mind's going. You do a great job of researching, and and I pick up two to three new SAT words every week in your your posts as well. So I get smarter with you in writing and in, in word here uh, on our podcast. But got some basketball. Mind answering some basketball questions? Our audience threw them at me, and they I asked, well, who do you want to answer these this week? And they picked you. So. You mind me tossing a couple of hoop questions at you? See if this may cause some spark, some discussion in your house, though, with your wife being a hoop connoisseur, too. Sure thing. Go for it. Yeah. So I, I posted a, you know, obviously an ongoing talk with the, with the, you know, who's who's the greatest player of all time. Sometimes it's kind of silly, but I, I like to listen. And, you know, we all tend to gravitate toward, you know, the era we grew up in. But um, I put a pyramid up. Uh, it was early this morning. I was up doing work about one o'clock and got some major traction. Maureen being one of them, your, your, your wife, she she uh, got back uh, this morning before she headed out to to teach middle school and uh, put her opinion of the pyramid. But the pyramid had Jordan at the top and and put, I think the next tier was like Kareem and Bird Magic and it had uh, LeBron in the third tier. So in that goat argument with, with basketball, I mean, is it silly? Do, do you engage in it? Who, who do you think's the, which kind of your tier in terms of the greatest in basketball? Um, you know, the way I look at it, uh, there's some people that play the game with, with phenomenal skill, and there's other people that play the game with phenomenal athleticism. Um, so I know, you know, current day, it's always Jordan or LeBron, LeBron or Jordan and whole thing. And I just kind of look at it like when Will Chamberlain played, he was physically with his his size his athleticism and the things that he did he was a freak of nature complete compared to the the competition he played against and i kind of think the same way about lebron i mean the guy is massive uh phenomenal athleticism and uh, you know all the other things that go with great players work ethic and all that other stuff but when you see LeBron heading down the court and you and and he's not only towers over but physically is stronger than anyone on the court, I mean it reminds me of Chamberlain playing. 
But in Chamberlain's day, they said that the best player was Bill Russell because he won championships. Um, right. And his smarts. Uh, I, I watched the documentary on Bill Russell um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, the thing that jumped out at me that you don't realize because I never really saw him play was people left and right were saying he's probably the smartest basketball player that ever played. So I look at it in in in, in that regard um, more so than if you want to say the overall package. I mean, I mean a guy like Larry Bird's, Larry Bird, maybe maybe you could include uh, Steph Curry. I mean, their skill level. Pistol Pete Maravich, skill level, basketball skill level, like beyond. Bill yeah. Walton, basketball skill level, just unbelievable. Um, it's, it's funny. I, I kind of stay up some nights and take a break and watch these documentaries, a lot of them on Netflix. I mean, the one on Bill Walton is unbelievable. You, you, I never even realized, even though I saw the games, how good he was at the end of his career with the Celtics. And it was all skill level and intelligence and smarts. I mean, Larry Bird goes on and on th- th- saying how unbelievable it was to play with him. Um, so I, I briefly looked at your pyramid and, you know, I, I mean, I'm in agreement with a lot of it. But I don't. I don't necessarily look at, um, you know, from era to era, who who played who or who's better than who. I, I kind of look at it like, where were they gifted and and what allowed them to be so successful? Yeah, and I, I, that's a good way to approach it. People tend to get emotional about it, and you're seeing that on the stream. So I encourage our audience to take a look at. It. And again, full transparency, I didn't make that pyramid up. I I, I pulled it off of uh, a. Uh, an individual that that created it in, in the basketball insider world, and uh, just thought I'd throw it up and, and see. And my biggest omission was Maravich was not on that pyramid at all, and I wrote that in, in the bottom, like that. That's my one issue. And I'm a big fan of Bill Wall, and I love that documentary. I think he's a basketball savant. Wish he had you know been able to stay healthy longer. And uh, I often question too. In fact, my son Tanner and I got in a discussion about Will Chamberlain the other day, and I said, "Is." Is he disrespected? Nobody ever talks about him as the greatest player of all time. And here's a guy that averaged 50 points and 20 rebounds over multiple seasons. And and uh, do we do we just not maybe we can't understand and appreciate the freakish nature of you know what he brought to But we almost uh, penalize him for it. Well, here's a here's two quick Will Chamberlain stories I remember from my childhood. He could jump up and take a quarter off the top of the backboard. I heard, I heard those stories. I, uh, you know, again, I, I don't doubt it for a minute. He was, he, he played multiple sports too. He was track and field. He was basketball. Um, in fact, he was with the Globetrotters too, which is a sport unto itself uh, before he played in the NBA. Yes. And remember he starred in the, the first professional volleyball league. Yes. Yep. Uh, in his fifties, in his fifties. And I do believe he's the only person to ever block uh, Kareem Jabbar's a skyhook. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I did not know that. And, um, you know, kind of on that same note, you mentioned, uh, you, you, you paid homage to, to Curry and his skill level, his ability to shoot, obviously the son of Del Curry, one of the most understated pros. He's a pros pro, uh, was a great shooter in his time as well, but there's been debate this week at the, and me being a former college point guard, the greatest point guard of all time. And Curry was very bold. He felt he's the greatest point guard of all time, and um, 
Jordan actually weighed in on that. Uh, Magic was up there, obviously, and Isaiah Thomas and John Stockton were mentioned. Surprised Oscar Robertson, Jerry West weren't mentioned, but uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? I, I'm, I grew up in the 80s. I'm an 80s baby, so to me, it was sacrilegious to even think that Magic would be questioned as the greatest point guard of all time. And I was a Bird fan, too, so... Um, you know, we know how the sports were back then. If you like the Celtics and Bird, you couldn't even stand looking at Magic. So uh, I, I tend to disagree very strongly that uh, you know in that regard with what Steph Curry believes. Well, you know, Magic's another another guy where you know there's times he played all five positions on the court. Yeah, you know, I I I do believe one time. Uh, Jabbar might have been injured, and it was a very, very big game. Magic played center, uh, you know. So yeah, early on in his career, you know. So you probably look at Magic and LeBron as the as the people that you know do those type of things. Um, I I was you know I was surprised when I looked up one day that S- Steph Curry was they listed him at like six three. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't really look that big. I, you know, I I would. I would put him in with, uh, you know, the tiny Archibald and Bob Cousy, you know, the, the the smaller point guards. And, yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but, I mean, it's it's tough. When, nowadays, the point guard, you know, the way they play the game is much different. You know, a point guard in Magic's day and before that was was hopefully the team leader and he elevated everybody's game. And, and that's why, I mean, it would be hard to leave out Oscar Robertson as far yeah. as what he used to do. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, the thing about the comparison and the different errors and everything, one of the things you see online is that, um, yes, people do get heated and stuff, but you know, sometimes it's a person just expressing their opinion because it was something that they loved. Yeah. It was some, it's something that brings them back to their youth. And, and that's beneficial. That that's, you know, that's what life's all about. I mean, if we can't sit back and enjoy some of the things that we've experienced in our past, um, you know, uh, but then all of a sudden people are like, who, who are you to compare and what do you know? Well, well, a lot of times the person's not saying they know everything. They're just saying, Hey, I remember, I mean, personally, I remember like it was yesterday when the New York Knickerbockers won the championships in 69, 70 and 72, 73. Um, you know, people talk about like the great backcourts in the history of basketball. Well, a lot of times they don't talk about Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and different things like that. I mean, one of the greatest team players at the time was the missing ingredient that turned the Knicks into a championship club, Dave DeBusher. Six six power forward. The wars he used to have with Gus Johnson and different people were unbelievable. Outstanding. Nobody really talks about Dave the Busher. Uh, yeah. You know, so, I mean, it's mix and match. It's it's what you like. It's, you know, some people like chocolate ice cream. Some people like vanilla ice cream. Other kids like chocolate cake. I mean, it's, it's just, it's what you know, what you've experienced, what you remember. Yeah. And I, I tend to approach those debates. I try, I try not to get engaged in it, but when our audience gets on it, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out there. And then they've kind of forced me to have an opinion with it, which, which I do, but I treat it a lot like, uh, um, how analytics should be treated. We talk about that on our network a lot where nothing is absolute. It's about the discussion. It's about the words. It's about the, you know, that, uh, talk back and forth. And at the end there's, it's a, you know, there's, there's endless possibities as to, you know, who, who is good. And 
a lot of respect for what Curry's done in his his career. He's certainly uh, one of the greatest shooters of all time. And of course, everybody on that pyramid and guys that were left out, people are putting guys that were left out, which I'm happy that they are, but uh, thought, it was, thought it was a good, good compositive list. Well, one more sports question for you, and, and then we'll, we'll move on. I want to hear about Brennan's first day at kindergarten quick before we get into the topics. But the, uh, you know, the Damian Lillard situation, staying on the hoop, came out and said, you know, he wanted to go to Miami, then they retracted back and forth. Um, I don't know where I sit on that, what, you know, but I, I did get asked a question by Tanner. I feel like I get interviewed in the podcast world in the car rides with my son Tanner all the time. He asked me about the drafts, football, baseball, basketball. And I said, you know what? I, I, I don't like it. Um, I, it's the only profession in the world, professional sports, where somebody, you, you're the greatest in your realm and somebody tells you where you got to go and play and get paid for. And then there's restrictions on what you can make, where if you're the greatest, you know, you're the top prospect coming out of law school at Vanderbilt or the top doctor, if you want to go play for the New York Yankees of, of medical professions, you can do that. If you want to go play for the, you know, the pirates where they don't spend a lot of money and you save the world and you can do that as well. But, uh, in sports where you, you know, back in, in the day in the eighties, we talked about if you're the greatest basketball player, you know, think about Danny Ferry, he go, he chose to go play in Italy for 10 years as opposed to go to the Clippers. Um, so I, I just, uh, pose it on you. What, what do you think about that? The draft, the fair, unfair, what, what's your thoughts on, on that particular topic? Well, that's a tough one because now in my lifetime, I've been a player experiencing, you know, the one side of uh, the draft and especially in the years that there was no minor league free agency. Um, so you're kind of locked in and then buried if you didn't get to the big, big leagues with that club. Uh, but then I also worked years in development, you know, um, I think the start of trying to correct that is, now, baseball and other sports have put it in not for the individual and the player to protect them or help them. They put it in because there were so many calls of, of teams tanking in order to get the first pick. So let's let's have the uh, – I mean, I'll give you an example. The, the rebuild that the Houston Astros successfully did. I mean, for three or four years off the top of my head, they're, they're, they had the first or second pick, third pick in the draft every single year. Um, so now they have that, um, that lottery system that the NBA first introduced and a lot of the, the leagues are adopting it. Uh, but you know, from a player's perspective, a couple of things have changed in baseball. One, there's minor league free agency that never existed. I can tell you many stories. I mean, the, the greatest killer of, young baseball players dream to play in the big leagues I mean, that I ever witnessed was Eddie Murray. I mean, Eddie Murray got to the big leagues at a young age and the first baseman at, at uh, Rochester behind him um, was big six, eight left-handed power hitter, you know, was a great ball player, never got to the big leagues. Right. At that time he was in triple A. The guy in double A was a six, six right-handed power hitter. Putting up huge numbers, never got to the big leagues. My roommate at the time was in A-ball uh, with me, big left-handed power hitter. And uh, basically, when the when the AAA guy retired, you know, or, or got buried and traded somewhere and got retired, you know, but usually ended up that they retired after, you know, four or five years of AAA and, and no end in sight, 
no light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, then the double up guy moved up and my roommate moved up. And eventually my roommate sat in AAA for, for four or five years, um, you know, sitting behind Eddie Murray because they were all big, strong, powerful first basemen. They really weren't going to play another position. Um, you know, I, I had the, uh, I had the good fortune that my years, uh, with the Baltimore Orioles in the minor leagues, um, the number three hitter in the lineup was, was Larry Sheets, left-handed power hitter and the number four hitter in the lineup, Dave Falcone, uh, both left-handed power hitters. Well, Falcone, my roommate was a first baseman, um, tremendous, tremendous hitter. Power to all fields. I mean, light tower power to all fields. Um, got the AAA and then eventually an instruction ball of spring training. They're trying him at left field. They're trying to started trying him at catcher. He was fine with being a catcher. He, he actually was, was pretty good, you know, would catch a lot of bullpens, work on a lot of things. Just trying to find another avenue for him to get to the big leagues. Well, they need an outfielder. Sheets goes to the big leagues, and I think at least one year hit 27 homers, and then, you know, I think eventually went to Japan, but he had a pretty successful career. Uh, in fact, his son Gavin plays for the White Sox right now. It was a first-round pick out of Wake Forest. And uh, Falcone slowly succumbed to four, five, six different uh, knee operations because they kept moving around the field because they knew he wasn't, you know, they had Eddie Murray. And uh, eventually he retired because of the injuries. Um, so to get drafted in that situation and end up sitting behind, um, I, I can go on about we had a triple A staff when I first signed. Um, Donnie Welchel, I'm going to try to remember the names, Donnie Welchel, Brooks Carey, Tommy Rowe, Mike Boddicker. Those are the four starters that stick out in my mind, in my memory. And uh, they beat the Columbus Clippers in AAA World Series where they might have thrown at least three shut shutouts in the four games that they won. And yet Earl Weaver, I mean, not only was it Earl Weaver at the manager, you had Palmer, McGregor, Flanagan, Steve Stone, um, and many, many stars, you know, before that, uh, uh, Oriole, Oriole uh, starting pitchers. And uh, most of those guys never got an opportunity. One day they, they needed a spot starter and they sent up Mike Boddicker uh, because it was his, t- his turn in the rotation that day. And uh, Earl Weaver said, this, not, this guy's not pitching for me. He's not pitching for me. What are you doing? And I think he went out. I don't know if he threw a shutout, but he threw a phenomenal game his first uh, first big league start, and um, out of necessity, they had to keep him. And next thing you know, he, he had a phenomenal career with the Orioles uh, for the time he was there. But if it wasn't for they needed a, they needed a spot starter, and he was there, he would have joined the, the the list of all his teammates that never had an opportunity to play. Even though year in and year out, I mean, the Columbus Clippers at that time were Don Mattingly, Mike Pagliarulo, Steve Balboni. I mean, they 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 were mashers. And yet the Rochester Red Wings consistently, um, you know, just dominated them from the pitching side. Um, so when you when you think about those type of stories and 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 now you see how the, the baseball side of the game is played now with minor league free agency and different things, you know, it's improved dramatically as far, as far as the players. Um, 
you know, now the extreme is what you bring up. What happens in the NBA is where it seems like the superstar players run the league. Um, you know, and uh, just like Magic or Bird or, or Jordan, you know, has said in the past or, or people have said, you know, quoted, stated that they said in the past, you know, well, Charles Barkley has said it on national television. We, we never would have thought of like, let's go, uh, let me go join Michael Jordan with the Bulls and Larry Bird will come and we'll make a super team. Yeah, we did that in the Olympics, you know, in Team USA, but we were, we were bitter rivals. We were, we were competitors. We wanted to be the best. Um, you know, so the game changes, the sports changes, the society changes, you know, as far as what's acceptable and what, but uh, I guess you could look at it that, you know, baseball's still on the low end as far as, um, player control and, and, uh, basketball is maybe on the high end where the players do control. So hopefully you could reach a happy medium someplace there in the, in the middle. Yeah. Well, uh, and we'll, we'll, I want to get to your, your story on flow here. You know, Cody Bellinger's dad, Clay, he had some of that bad luck. He was behind possibly two of the greatest shortstops of all time. He was with uh, the Orioles behind Ripken and be, and behind Jeter with the Yankees. So he, uh, Again, another tough luck. It was it was a solid pro, but never really got his his shot. I think because of that. But uh, you you had a story. Um, we, we were talking a little bit before the show started, but you had a little segue from our last show about flow. You wanted to share. Yeah, a couple of things that popped up uh, during the past two weeks uh, working with clients and some of the younger players is that um, the one the one statement by. Uh, by the uh, founder of Flow, as I've referred to in the past, Dr. C. Uh, he spoke about um, being thoroughly engrossed and focused on the task at hand while receiving and feeling ultimate um, joy and pleasure at participating in that activity. For years, I've used the term relaxed for the uh, pro players, relaxed execution with unbridled enthusiasm. So it's just a, basically the same thing in different words. But when you're dealing with young players, <clears throat> excuse me, um, one of the things that occurs is even if you've given them Dr. Kurdix's book, all right, uh, win the next pitch, even if they're starting to use those mental skills to, you know, stay even keeled and, and do their thing and trying to apply what they've learned, they're still points in time where the negativity starts to take over, whether it's driven internally or externally from coaches or fans or, or the competition or even some of your teammates. So how do you explain to, uh, um, how do you explain to a 10 or 11 or 12 year old, you know, these concepts of flow and, and what they're trying to accomplish? Well, I started relating to them. Um, I can remember reading, uh, a few years ago, some some research into happiness and different things like that, and and they they said that physically, if you smile, it triggers something in the body that it's hard to then stay in a negative place in, in your mindset. So I started talking to the players, and I was and I was like, now let's remember something. This this doctor. He made these statements that not only are you focusing on the next pitch, all right, focusing on the task at hand, 
But when you're in the point of receiving extreme pleasure and joy out of, out of participating in, on the next task, that pleasure and joy can even enhance your focus to a level that you're in the flow, you're in that athletic zone. So if other doctors and researchers have stated the importance of smiling and ha- ha- what that does to your, uh, your, your physical temperament and your, and your mental emotions, it's a really good way that when that umpire calls ball four and you thought it was strike three or your shortstop happened to boot two balls in a row and you're, you're starting to get into that negative places and the emotions are starting to catch up on you and take over, you know, if you just step aside, take a deep breath, do the things that Dr. Kurt has recommended in his book, but put a smile on your face, it's easier to then get back to the positive part of receiving joy for what you're doing, which then increases your focus and then increases your chances of getting in that flow state. Yeah, um, those are, those are signs. And I've read those as well. There's, there's also a portion of it that says, and I'm not making this up audience. We'll conclude this in the show notes with the research, but you're 33% smarter when you smile. And, uh, I always joke at my kids cause I tend to be, I don't know if it's, uh, being the oldest child or what, but I tend to be a little bit of a frowner. Um, the, the kids will joke about laughing and smiling. And I joke, I said, 33% smart if you smile. Imagine how smart I'd be if I smiled once in a while. But uh, it, it is a study. You're, you're, you're smarter. And I, I like that point to our audience. I hope um, that should be a nice cue from coaches, right? Smile and breathing is the other thing. Smile and breathe and yes. good things will happen. Yes. Yes. Um, so one, one of the things I want to discuss this, this week, Dave, is I, I, I came across a a document that I saw uh, posted online and then I looked it up and did some research. And um, the document is, uh, I posted it last week, uh, a model for injury casualty uh, in adolescent throwing athletes. Tough, tough word for me to pronounce, but causality. So what causes, what, what could be a leading cause Um, and the reason it interests me is because when you're dealing with young ball players, one of the questions that inevitably pops up from the players and the parents is my son wants to start pitching or when should he start pitching? Um, and then it goes into the next levels. When, when should he throw a curveball? When should he do this? When, you know, all these things, because, you know, parents, they understand, um, the risks that are going on in, in the modern game of baseball, as far as the levels of Tommy John and all these things. Now they don't necessarily know the reasons, but they know that there's some fear factors out there that, you know, we want to try to avoid these things. So when I looked at this chart, the, the couple of things that jumped out at me was, you know, they spoke of intrinsic factors. So I'm going to call those initially the things that, you have some control over, okay, because they're about you individually, uh, not about, you know, what the coach does or this does or anything like that, okay? And that's age. Um, and for me, what goes with age is, yes, chronological age is, is of course, important. 
But what it really relates to is the, the maturation of that individual. So not that we can all go get MRIs or CAT scans and find out, you know, our skeletal age and it, where is it in the process of our, our growth plates closing and all like that. Um, but if you take those two together, you start to figure out who is physically uh, mature enough to start the process of learning how to pitch. Now, I'll give an example. My, uh, my 10-year-old son, Seamus, um, you know, as, as people will say for jokes, you know, to have fun, that uh, he, he inherited all his athleticism from his mother. Um, and he probably did because he's much faster than I ever was when I was his age. But he's 10 years old. He's probably around five foot three. He's all arm and arms and legs. Um, and when you watch him play flag football or you watch him play basketball, which is, I believe basketball is his first sport. First sport he started playing the first one he, he just loves doing, you know, it's the sport that, you know, you're looking for him for dinner and he's out in the driveway at the basketball court, court, not only just shooting, but, uh, practicing dribbling and using his left hand that his grandfather always tells him about. And, and he's just doing it and he loves doing it. Um, he's at a basketball skills camp right now. We finally found one here in Charlotte, uh, the Broman Academy. And so far so good because it's all about skills and skill training and, and the whole thing. Uh, he absolutely loves it. And all, all they're doing is, you know, dribbling and you know, all the things that, you know, that are, essential for the fundamentals of learning the game of basketball and improving your skill level. But on the baseball field, he's a baby giraffe. Now he gets in there and he competes and he never backs down. And, you know, in the batter's backs, I, I, I kid to myself that he's Dave Kingman because when he, the leverage he has, he he's hitting balls, you know, over outfielders heads, even though they're playing on big fields and, and, you know, in their little league age. Um, but in the process of throwing one, he, he first started throwing and because he was taller than the rest of the kids in like T-ball or anything like that, he's, he got in the habit of throwing so that his teammate could catch the ball, which is, was fine to start, but then it carried over to where, there's sometimes he's still, he, he relates the size of the, of his teammate to his ability level instead of, no, that guy can catch, just cut it loose, throw it. Well, he's all arms and legs. And even though he's five, three, I mean, he weighs 86 to 90 pounds. It's, it, but he's slender, but he's, he's wiry strong. He's, he's not ready to pitch. He's physically not at the, at the maturation process that he should pitch. Now, when I say not pitch, if he's playing on his team and he comes in to throw for an inning, you know, he's not even at the level where he's throwing the ball at 100%. You know, so it, it, it's not necessarily that negative. But I'm talking about <laughs> when you 
when you become the pitcher and you're the guy that's pitching, you know, once a week on these travel teams or, or more, um, these are what the factors like age and maturation and skeletal age and growth plates and your muscular anatomy, your body type. That's when they all, that's when it becomes important. So if a parent has a son similar to, to my guy, Seamus, A, probably shouldn't be a pitcher right now, be the pitcher. And I, when I use the term the pitcher, I was not built like him when I was younger. Uh, I didn't really grow until uh, height-wise until I was in uh, freshman, sophomore year of high school. Um, I never, I, I wasn't the pitcher until I was 15 years old when I was in eighth grade. Before that, I had a good arm. You know, I'm left-handed. I played outfield. I played first base. Did I come in in relief in a Lula game because they needed some? Yeah, yeah, but I never was the pitcher, you know, so to, so to speak. Uh, and again, the rules in Little League back then were way different than what happened in, you know, what happens in travel ball. But um, now if your child fits the mold of like Seamus, which was somewhat similar to me, but different, I didn't start pitching until I was 15 years old. All right, like I said, being the pitcher, um, what was it, five years later, six, five, almost six years later, I was the number one pick in the nation in the draft. But did I have a very wide foundation in motor skills? Yes. One life was different then. You rode your bike, you went everywhere, you ran, you ran up hills, you jumped, you climbed the trees, you climbed fences, you played basketball. Oh, you're in New York, so what do you do? Well, you play football. You play two-hand touch football in the street um, in the fall. You played basketball in the winter. You played baseball in the in the spring and the summer. Okay, so you're playing multi sports. Why? Even if it's not organized, you're playing them because this is the way. That's the way the world was at that time. Um, so the other thing that comes in with these factors is after age and maturation is you know, there's psychological and emotional maturation. Like if you're the pitcher, if you're going to pitch a game, you're going to start a game each week. Well, in order to prevent injury, there's a lot of work that goes into that. Whether it's, uh, you know, in the gym, in the workouts and, and different things like that to, um, you know, the, the emotional and mental preparation. For example, you're in the game and um, maybe you walk a couple of guys, maybe there's an error, maybe you feel you're being squeezed, uh, the conflict rises, and if you're not psychologically and emotionally uh, mature enough to handle it, you're going to start trying too hard. You try too hard, we've discussed it before, all the bad things come out. So those are the starting factors I think that are very important. Um, in, in that whole process of, you know, when, when should my child start pitching? Um, a quick story about the psychological and emotional maturity levels. So I'm working with a client. He first came to me, 12 years old, uh, very similar to my son that he's a tall, slender kid. Uh, very good basketball player. He came to one of my conditioning camps, and as a warm-up, 
before we did our dynamic, you know, baseball warm up, I just threw the basketball out there, basketballs out there in the court. Next thing you know, they're all playing pickup basketball, running up and down the court, getting loose and the whole thing. And I, I just watch them. I mean, the guy can play basketball with either hand. He, he, you know, he can dribble the ball. He's, he's very advanced as far as his skill level of playing basketball. So he first came to me pitching and, uh, he was, he was making great strides because he wasn't necessarily at that time pitching in games. Uh, and he was 12. So it was on the, you know, on the uh, 45 foot mound. So when he did get an opportunity, he wasn't the pitcher, but he would pitch in some games and it was on the 40 foot, 45 foot mound. So he wouldn't try hard. He would do his thing. He'd stay within himself and the work with me, he was progressing and, uh, you know, next thing you know, the dad and, and, and the player approached me and, and he was getting ready to, you know, go back to the slightly bigger mound that they use at 13. And, and, uh, two things happened. One, a lot of the pitchers were throwing curveballs, So could he learn? Uh, the other thing is that he was a hitter. He never did hitting, hitting lessons or sessions with me. And now he was seeing curveballs for the first time. Um, so then they asked if they could, they could hit with me. Well, the first thing happened, well, let's start training on how to throw curveball properly. Let's start doing the exercises. Let's start going through the reps and you're going to do them with me. You're not going to do them in the game. You're not going to fool around with anybody else. Here's how we're going to do it. What are, some those, what are some of those exercises? Well, I know we're we're not we're audio, but um. yeah, just you know the the simple t- you know tubing exercises, the Jaeger tubing exercises. I mean, uh, you know, originally way back, m- most of the shoulder exercises were called Job exercises after uh, Doctor Job, the first guy to do with Tommy John on Tommy John. Um, you know, so they're the basic things that everybody will, would see on taking care of your rotator cuff and you know, your, your, your forearm strength and, and different things like that, your hand strength, um, everything to enable you to stay on the baseball and through the baseball. Or when you get into curveball position to, you know, be in a positive firm wrist position, hand stays on the ball, doesn't slide off the ball, you know, uh, to learn how to throw it properly. You're basically, you know, you're in charge of getting your fingers in front of the ball. You know, you don't make the ball curve. Um, you know, how to pull down out front and different things that are just the basic starter things about how to spin the baseball correctly. Uh, and, and then just doing it and, and just, you know, starting with rotation, not worrying about velocity, you're playing catch, you're doing a little flat ground, you know, simple, basic things. Right. Um, and this guy could spin a baseball absolutely phenomenally he was a natural at it it was it was it was something to see and uh i mean i used to grin inside thinking holy mackerel when this kid get old gets older he's got this gift so one thing led to another now he starts doing a lot of hitting with me um when we took a break from throwing in the off season and the hitting starting to come and he's starting to come and when he first started you know trying too hard flying the front side uh, using the shoulders too much, to, you know, trying to get the body to get help the bat to the ball instead of the bat getting to the ball and the, and the body producing the power, uh, different things like that. And 
and next and he's starting to really come on. So in this past season, on his travel team, on his middle school team, uh, then he he went on some team and you know like they do in travel ball, they played in a tournament in Florida and and he does not try hard. He's in rhythm and timing, and he is hitting like he never thought he could hit. And it is line drive and line drive. Then he goes away for a weekend. He comes back. He hit the first weekend, I remember. I, I hit two home runs. That's the first two home runs he ever hit in his life. Then he goes down to Florida to play in some invitation-only tournament. And he hits four home runs and hits like 675 over the over the, the week. And, and it's just unbelievable. Well, he continues to do some hitting with me, and you can see it. You know, of course, it's confidence, self-confidence, but everything's about rhythm and timing. He's not trying too hard. He's relaxed. He's making adjustments. He's feeling what he's doing. He's, he's the model of what you're supposed to be doing. But now the mound's moved back. Um, he hasn't... Uh, put on as much weight as some of the some of his competition or his teammate. And when we get back to some serious throwing, he's asking me, um, well, do you have that workout for me? Do you have that seven rotation for me? What should I be doing when I'm not with you? All positive things. But when you see that he's now with me, he's he's trying too hard. He's flying the front side. He's getting out of rhythm. All right, he's losing spin on the curveball because he's he's hooking it out front. He's trying to be the one responsible for making the ball curve. He's fallen completely away from the fundamentals that had him improve so much when he was uh, 12 years old. Um, and what's my seven-day rotation? What do I do? Like if I pitch a game on, on Saturday, what should I do on Sunday? Do I then throw there? Should I schedule come with you? And there's no problem with planning and understanding what you're doing. But slowly in my mind, it started to be a crutch. And he stopped focusing on his rhythm and timing and his feel for what he's doing. So here's a case where the psychological and emotional maturity you could say is fine on his hitting side now because he had unbelievable amounts of success, even when he went to the larger field. But the pitching portion hit some bumps in the road. It wasn't smooth sailing. And now we revert back to the try hard because he's not physically, he has more maturing to do, but emotionally he has to get he has to get back to where he's focusing on the next pitch. He's focusing on the next task. He's working on his rhythm and timing. There wasn't a physical change in his pitching delivery or mechanic. It was an emotional change of then getting back to trying too hard because he had lost his confidence and wasn't thinking that he was as good as the competition or as good as he wanted to be. I, mean, I was going to ask you, is that more of a, it's more of a makeup situation? Cause you got, here's the same kid, same sport, same field. He's having, you know, visible success with the hitting 
And so he feels really good about it. He's having, you know, not the same type of success with the pitching. Um, I guess two, two part question for you. One, is that, is that a makeup issue? And, and two, I, I often laugh at, at education. They talk about thematic learning and you hit on it twice here. Once with the basketball, with the spin, he's got good with basketball. If you have good, good strength in your fingertips with dribbling and shooting, you're probably going to be pretty good at spinning that baseball because it's a finger fingertip wrist action type of thing. And, and so number one is, is, is thematic learning there. And two, is it, is it a makeup issue where he's just got to mature as a kid? Well, I think, um, I don't mean that negatively. I mean, yeah. just, he's... yes. Um, but here, here is where, um, we have to realize the importance is that if you're hitting and you try too hard, you get out of sync and you just hit that lull that maybe you have to, um, psychologically and emotionally mature a little bit. Besides forming some bad habits, you're not going to get hurt. You're not going to all of a sudden, well, I, I, I swung the bat the wrong way or I swung it too hard or my body was out of sync or I, tempt, I attempted to move the bat initially with my shoulders. All the negative things that go wrong, most likely you're not going to suffer and have, a, have to have a Tommy John. Or, or maybe now have the, you know, develop a shoulder impingement, uh, because you can't stabilize your scapulas and there's elevation of the scapulas while you're getting into the uh, throwing position. Um, you're not going to sublex, sublex the shoulder and have the humeral head start rolling around in there and stretch out your, your, your cartilage or glenoid labrum. So the negatives in the hitting side are not going to be detrimental to your long-term health. So if there's growing pains in the confidence, in the psychological and emotional maturity, I mean, we're going to work on that. But on the throwing side, if all of a sudden that that player experiencing a little lull, a little negativity, a little down, and we're trying too hard and we're doing all the things we've spoken about in the past. And a travel ball coach takes him, you know, to a four-day tournament somewhere and he pitches three times um, and he tries too hard and he does all these negative things because of the of the emotional maturity. And, and, and this, when I say this, it's not that it, he's lacking in those traits, but those traits haven't caught up to maybe his physical maturation that he has the ability to pitch. Well, he has a bad weekend like that. Now all of a sudden, you know, Oh, we got some shoulder tendonitis from the impingement or we've got, um, you know, the, the dreaded, uh, you know, road to Tommy John, um, you know, similar to, you know, I'm sure a lot of parents out there, you know, all of a sudden their their young child's learning how to pitch and next thing you know he's he's feels some soreness and ache in his elbow and you go to the doctor and the doctor says, Oh, he has little league elbow. And um for me I sometimes that's the you know, the doctor doesn't necessarily want to come out and say, Well, you keep it up, you're gonna have Tommy John. You know, be, be you know, because the the client or patient is either going to get annoyed at you or or lose confidence in you, and 
look for another doctor or whatever. But the point is, is that anything in your youth that starts with your elbow is the initial stages that, you know, if you keep it up and the workload increases, which it does as you get older, you're, you're going to be more susceptible to, to Tommy John. Um, the other thing that happens is, um, let's take the example of the, of the player, uh, whether it's the player I, I just spoke of, or maybe if, maybe it's a guy who's an outfielder and, uh, he works out hard. He does everything that someone tells him to do. He's a great kid and, 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 you know, he's the, he's the number two hitter in your lineup and, and he's just, he's just solid, but, um, uh, his elbow starts hurting. He doesn't really have proper, um, throwing mechanics. Uh, he's the number two hitter, but he wants to be the number three or number four hitter. He wants to hit home runs like some of his other teammates and he starts lifting and he gets stronger and the throwing mechanics don't improve. And, you know, next year, he's, next thing you know, he's 12 years old and, goes to the doctor because he has elbow pain and the doctor says, well, he has a little league elbow, right? Um, well, that, that doesn't sound really that threatening. So he's a, he's a young guy. He just wants to keep playing. Yeah. So he does the exercises. Well, he might rest when he's supposed to rest, you know, whatever the doctors prescribe, he follows it. He does everything he's supposed to do. And he goes back to throw. And, and what do you think happens when he's throwing in an unstructured environment, meaning, there's someone that's not there really working with him on his throwing mechanic because obviously something was a little wrong that caused the initial, you know, elbow pain. And, uh, and next thing you know, he has a prior injury that he's dealing with and now his throwing mechanics get even worse because the body's a survival mechanism and it's trying to avoid the pain. Um, and then now he's 14, 15 years old, and he's looking to get ready to go play, you know, upcoming year as a freshman in high school, and his hopes are high and everything, and his throwing is, has repeatedly gotten worse. So, so how do you, you – you've recognized this in this young man. How do, you, how do you intervene and kind of stop the spiral? Well, I think the first thing that's important is what we're talking about you know, today that the parents have to understand these intrinsic factors because they have some control over when, when we're talking about when my, my child should start to learn how to pitch and, and look at it honestly and not from their own emotions that, um, you know, that they want their kid to learn how to pitch or they want their, you know, it's coming, it's more parent driven. Um, but in the, in the sake of the, of the person, um, you know, let's say that outfielder that I brought up, uh, you have to, you have to stop at dead in his tracks and go back to the basics and teach them how to throw properly. All right. And you have to work at it. You got to prescribe the proper exercises. You got to assess their body. You know, you got to assess, I mean, a lot of guys at that age, you know, maybe they're also playing football, they're wrestling and they're, they're getting extremely strong and tight uh, in their pushing muscles on the front side of their body, which limits the, their internal rotation flexibil uh, flexibility so they never drop into external rotation in the proper throwing mechanic. 
we then end up with the with the lead elbow uh, and the pushing action or the hand, you know, dropping in towards the ear that gives that pushing catapult action, and and then it just that's a death sentence for the elbow. Um, so you really have to break it down, and then the other part is you just you know, all these things we've talked about flow and put a smile on your face and, you know, relax execution, unbridled enthusiasm. You just have to try to, uh, strike a chord with them that they trust you and that, Hey, this is part of the process. You're going to be fine, but this has to get accomplished. Um, how much do you see when, you know, kids will, and, and this kid may be an example. He was, you know, you were describing, him sticking with a process and whether it's a kid or with teams, uh, things are going well. It's easy to get out there and see that the, you know, the, the external success, but it's because of repeating the process over and over again. And as you're talking, not just the, the physical skills, but also the smiling, the, the breathing, the, you know, getting yourself in that flow state when a kid starts struggling, which is going to happen, especially in baseball. Um, What's the importance level of sticking to that routine um, and, and sticking with it, especially during those hard times? Well, that's a key. That's a key. Um, you know, it, I, I, I've told this R.A. Dickey story before, but I think it's a it's a way that you know coaches and parents can look at it. Sometimes for that young player, things do get difficult and if we have put them in an environment where psychologically and emotionally, they're not ready for it. Um, even if they're physically ready for it, we have to, we have to ease the stress and ease the pressure. So, um, I I've done it many times with countless, countless players. I mean, I did it with R.A. Dickey. I did it with, uh, Derek Turnbow when, uh, he was, uh, Traded to the Brewers from the Angels. Uh, he was in AAA. Finally made his debut, uh, debut in the big leagues. Uh, had some success. Uh, was going to be the closure of future and hit a bump in the road and things fell apart. And Take the onus off their shoulders. Put it, put it on your back. Let them know that you're there for them. Uh, and it's part of the process of how to get better. Um when you walk into a lot of little league age ballparks nowadays and you're watching these kids play, you don't see a lot of that happening. You know, you see, uh, you see a lot of pressure. You see a lot of um, kids striving to get better. You see the, you see, I'll, I'll use the word, even though I've always used it as a positive this way and negative, it's, it's like un, unbridled competitiveness. Um, That's a polite way to put it. Yeah, it's, it's chaotic. Um, and then, and then they're, they're carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders, you know, the guys that are in a negative place. Um, I'm, I mean, in, for, in the past two weeks, I, I may have related this smile story that I told uh, 40 different times because that's how important it is for them to understand. Um, the other thing is that since we're dealing with the question, when should my child start pitching, um, 
if he's physically ready, uh, age and, and maturation and all those other things that we spoke of, uh, and those are things that you can control. How do you control them? No, he doesn't start pitching yet. Yes, he does start pitching. It's very simple, yes, no. Psychological, emotional factors. Um, if you have a solid relationship with your, with your, your child and they're going to pay attention and listen to you, as a parent, um, you know, start to compliment them and get them to focus on their effort, not on their performance. Um, I, I, there was a study that came out where uh, children were doing math problems, and one group was always complimented and told great things about how phenomenal they were because they found the pro the right answer. And in the other group, they were always complimented and, uh, and great things were said about their effort in attempting to solve the problem. And what came out in the, in the, in the study was that the group that was continually complimented for their performance and the, and their ability to give the right answer when they faced the problem in the future that they couldn't figure out, they gave up. When the group who was complimented for their effort faced a problem in the future that they could not solve, they worked on it and worked on it and worked on it until they tried to figure a way to solve it. The effort was continuous um, and, and, and nonstop. So... On the baseball side of things, if we've reached a point where we're physically ready to get it done and um, and psychologically and emotionally we're getting there, it's getting close, start complimenting the player for their effort. Start complimenting the player for being part of the process. Start complimenting the player when they start to understand how to feel what they're doing. Have the focus beyond that, not on the competitive aspects of performance. Hey, you know, little Johnny, you threw a no-hitter today. You were awesome. Okay. Um, you know, sometimes it's great to hear a compliment when, you know, you got knocked out of the game in the third inning. Why? You were competed, you competed, you never backed down, your effort didn't vain, you didn't lose your temper, you did all the positive things that come from being a competitor, a solid competitor. Um, that That's the big thing. I mean, I, I remember when my son played one of his first baseball games of uh, kid pitch, and uh, afterwards we got in the car and, you know, I wasn't going to be the guy that, you know, You've always seen the the scene where you know the dad starts breaking down everything the, the poor guy did, and it's all performance related and stuff. And I just said to him, "Hey, did you have fun today? Yeah. You know what? I really liked the way you competed. It didn't matter what happened. You were there. You were cheering on your teammates. You were positive, and that's why you had fun. Way to go! Keep it up. Yeah, that's yeah, the way to deal." with this 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 process 
Now, you were talking about the study that uh, saw our audience. Carol Dweck did a, did a great study out at Stanford University, has a book out that touches on what you're talking about when when you were speaking about the math, the yeah. math problems, locking in on process as opposed to, um, you know, just being innately smart. It's, it's, it's about process with everybody. And I like, I like the two, you know, it takes me back to my childhood when I used to come home from, you know, playing, doing a workout, whatever it would be, young age. My dad used to ask all the time, did you concentrate? Did you waste a shot? Did you waste an at-bat? Did you waste a, an opportunity to get better? Um, that always impressed me because I could concentrate. I could lock in and not waste it. My mom used to ask me, did you have fun? Did you make friends? Yeah. <laughs> those, are two, those are two things that I – not that one promoted one over the other. It was just kind of how they balanced me out. And uh, I always remind our kids that before we start practice. If you concentrate and you have fun today, we're probably going to have a great practice. And you're probably going to have a great experience. So great points. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, no problem. And and now here's here's the reason why um, these intrinsic factors, age, physical maturation, psychological and emotional maturity are so important because they're they're going to determine in a positive way when that start date is. Okay, of you know when should we start pitching. Um, because here's the developmental risks. And sometimes we don't have total control over this. But it starts when we talk about physical maturation. You know, what are their strength levels? We've gone on and on and on the story about, you know, you're given the same baseball, you're given in the big leagues, even though you're not strong enough to throw it. Um, but I take it a step further. Uh Simple, closed-chain kinetic work, like simple compound movements. Bending over and picking up a box. I mean, do we hinge properly? Do we do we do all the things that are part of our, our workouts? Do the hips work properly? I mean, if we can't do basic movements, you know, as a 10-year-old, if I can't, as a 10-year-old, bend over and touch my toes, uh, bend down and pick up a box using your knees and your lower back and your whole body. Um, if I can't get into a split squat or a lunge position and, and remain stable, um, if I can't stabilize my shoulder blades, scapular stabilization, if I can't do a plank for more than 10 seconds because my spine gets all wobbly and I get out of whack, uh, if I can't do bilateral movements and stabilize the spine, the hips, and the, and the shoulders, these are all strength and range, range of motion issues that have to be addressed before we start piling on, is my kid going to pitch or, or what's that workload pitching going to be? Yeah. All right. I think it's great. You know, we, you, you've met my younger son, Tanner, my, my older son, David, we call him Blue. It's amazing how blue is a popular name down south. We're up in the north. It was not as well received, especially by our Italian family <laughs> members. So, but blues, it was, I'll share the story another time. But um, he grew a lot this past year. And when he grew, um, some things adjusted with him physically. We're almost kind of not reteaching motor skills, but he got, I was almost became like a deer on ice with some things. And um, we prolonged him uh, doing pitching because kind of, uh, what you're saying emotionally he was ready he's proven that he can handle that one-on-one -on -one battle 
pitcher batter from the batter standpoint. He's a switch batter as well, but the growing um, caused his body and you know the the nervous system to do some things, and it took a little longer for the brain to get to the muscles. So we had to prolong it a little bit from that standpoint because you talked about injury. I was concerned that getting up there with the stress of pitching physically, that his body just needed to be a little bit better um, in line um, with the, with the recent growth. He went from five five to six foot, you know, in, in like a yeah. twelve month period. So it was like, okay, let's just take it a step back. Same thing happened with basketball, where the natural instinct would have been, you know, at his age bracket, he's a, he's a, he's a rising ninth grader. He's a ninth grader now um, to put him in the you know down low where he's a natural guard. And I went just the opposite. I said, let's, let's struggle. Let's figure it out what your body's doing, right? Your mind knows what to do, but it's just a matter of letting yourself see it and and mess up a little bit. And then your body will self-correct your body. Your body knows the way it's just bigger, longer, longer time for the, you know, brain to get to the the nervous system or down to the muscles. So uh, we, we took that route and we prolonged the pitching because what's the rush? I mean, we have such an inertia for immediate success nowadays. Most of the time it's what the parents want that we, we forget about this development that we're talking about today. Right. Yeah. So I have a couple of stories to share, but I, I'm going to just go down this development risks um, quickly. And then uh, in the future, if people want to know more information. We can, we can d- delve deeper into it uh, on another episode. But the other thing that you see happen is, you know, who, who ends up being the pitcher on the, you know, on the 10 year old team, 11 year old team, 12, it's usually the guy with the best arm. Right. So the coach sees a guy and he's throwing the heck out of the ball. Right. And uh, a lot of times he's the shortstop because he's the guy that can throw the ball away from shortstop to first base. Right. So this happens with me a lot with some of the young guys I deal with, work with. They get up on a mound, they're doing their thing. And you know what? It's working and it's flowing. And next thing you know, they get in the game and they get in the and they get in a bind. And they know that if they just take the ball and fire the heck out of it, they'll be okay. And they come out of their delivery, they come out of everything. Everything's in the negative. They throw the ball improperly, a low elbow, whatever you want to call it, whatever they do. But they got great velocity. They have great natural velocity and they get the hitters out. Next thing you know, in the game, they're doing this way more than just a few times. Why? Performance oriented success. So if we have the great arm, but we don't have the proper strength and the range of motion, the next one is skill level. I'll equate that to athleticism motor skill foundation, rhythm and timing, your ability to physically through kinesthetic awareness and feel make adjustments. Your throwing mechanic, how you first learn to throw and where it's at. The guy with the great arm, sometimes he just throws the heck out of it with the improper mechanic. And then we've touched on this, the little elbow and cracked growth plates and different things. Injury history on and off the field. I'll give you a quick example. We might, might not think it's a major thing, um, young player goes through a growth spurt like your son. Next thing you know, we're, we're, we're not backing off a little bit so he can catch up with his body and he has a stress reaction in his, uh, in his lower leg. 
or worse, he has a stretch reaction in his uh, lower back. We're healed. We're totally done. We're good. But have we really retrained that person's body to then work efficiently so that that either doesn't happen again or that the old mechanic, which was affected by the the initial stages of that pain or that stress reaction, have we gotten back to the good mechanic? So that all comes into play. And then a lot of things that you see at the, at the, you know, the little league level, especially with these travel teams is, you know, they're, they're, if you want to call it their spring training preparation, are they in shape? Are they fit? Uh, all the different things that you would think of, um, you know, what a big leaguer does, meaning this, I have to be physically fit and athletically prepared properly in order to do all these things. All right. So when you look at that list of development risks, now you, you start to really understand why the the intrinsic factors of age, physical maturation, psychological and emotional maturation are so important because we've got a lot to deal with. And in closing on this, uh, on this chart, let's look at a couple of negatives that if you decide your child should start pitching and then pitching in the games, even if we've clicked all the boxes and we've taken care of everything that we've discussed, here's the reason why this is so important in, the, in those developmental risks. Now we look at all the things out in the environment, the extrinsic factors that your child's going to be exposed to. We've already discussed it, early specialization. So we're either not playing multi-sports or we're not playing multiple positions. So the overall athleticism, the motor skill foundation, the rhythm and timing, all is probably not going to be where it should. And the early specialization is going to increase the overall stress levels because now the child is maybe playing the game or throwing year round or just throwing, you know, in, in, two different seasons of fall and the spring when maybe he needs a break, but these are the things that he's going to be exposed to, uh, to go with the, uh, early specialization and only playing one sport. How about classic thing that happens? Well, my son plays travel ball, but he still likes to play rec ball with his friends, with his like friends from school, friends from the neighborhood. And, they're pitching in both. That's a recipe for disaster. Now, all of a sudden, our pitch volume, whether it's in a game, in an inning, over a season, over a year, is doubled because he's pitching on multiple teams. All right. And just for the record, that doesn't count as two separate sports either. I hear that a lot too. Right. Okay, exactly. <laughs> you know. Then we've spoke about this. We have to be ready to train properly. But we all have. We also have to understand because we've we've all run across this. So the child is playing baseball on two teams. Sometimes on these travel teams, there's some players that end up being guest players from weekend to weekend. 
And, and Which I hate, by the way. I can't stand that. All right. And on top of that, they're going to speed and agility class, and they're going to the gym, and they're 14 years old. So the overall training volume and stress being placed on the body is way too high. I'll relate a quick story. In pro ball, um, I would educate my pitching coaches when I did the coordinator job, and we would talk about this all the time. So let's say a pitcher you know, is pitching a no-hitter or a great game, and instead of 100 pitches that day, we let him throw 110 pitches because he's on cruise control. Everything's positive. Well, his next bullpen, you know, we might cut down by 10 pitches. His next session of uh, his next session in a weight room, we might cut the overall workload down. We have to balance it to where the the training volume, the game volume, the bullpen volume, all works together, right? Well, how many times do you see that happen uh, with 10, 11, and twelve year olds or fourteen year olds that are playing, you know, on two different travel teams or whatever? It doesn't happen. So something, right? Then. Because we're playing baseball year-round, now we're throwing year-round, right? Or we're throwing for two teams in one season, right? We need a break, okay? And then the last one, um, field conditions. Now there's a couple things come into play. Even with these artificial mounds that you see in these these, uh, town parks nowadays, you know, they're beat up, they're whatever, they're not functioning, a lot of times they're too small for the age group they're with, right? And, um, you know, very similar to, you know, you, you grew up in the Bronx or you're, you're playing up in the Northeast and, you know, by the middle of summer you're pitching on a mound that there's two-fit hole in front of the rubber. You know, these are all negatives, right? We don't take that into account. The other thing is I'll relate a really quick story. Um some people, you know, some people already know this, but like my story. So I'm the number one pitching prospect in the organization. I'm pitching in double A in Charlotte. Um, it was like a week of rain. And uh, we have to get the final game in. It's a Friday night. My manager's Grady Little. You know, I'm a 21-year-old, you know, stubborn Irish kid from the Bronx. All right, we're playing, we're playing. We start the game in the pouring rain. Oh, about the third pitch of the game, I slip. My arm in the ball goes to home plate. My body goes to second base. By September, tear. By September, pulls out. Glenoid labrum tears. Super spinatus tendon tears. You know, and at that day and age, you know, very, very limited chance that, you know, surgery and other things are going to work. It's it's not like the way it's nowadays. So my first day as pitching coordinator after spring training. I'm going with our hitting coordinator, Jim Scalen, and we fly into Huntsville, Alabama, double A, our double A clubs there. And we come straight from the airport. There was rain, so there was some delay at the at the uh, airport. We come into the stadium, and there's our first-round pick from a few years ago who has already dealt with um, different elbow and shoulder issues. Nothing major, but some aches and pains. All spring training, I've been working on him with, uh, 
his external rotation of his front hip so he can stay back and not get on the front side too fast and different things. And now he's on the mound taking his warm-up pitches in the pouring rain. Um, you want to talk about flashbacks and all of a sudden my, uh, I don't know how, my, my stomach was in my throat or whatever words you want to use. But that's another thing that we don't take into effect. Okay. Um, yeah, my, my, my child's going to start pitching on travel ball. Yes. Yeah, we've checked all the other boxes. Oh, now we get to these exposure things that we don't have a lot of control unless we're the coach. And then we never think field conditions, but it happens. Um, so those are my thoughts when I saw that chart. And I thought that, um, everybody should take a look at that. Everybody should start to understand these factors, the ones you can control, the ones you can't control. Understand some of the exposure effects and, and you know, um, if we haven't checked the boxes before that, those exposure effects are going to be pretty negative. Um, and then the last thing for today is, uh, as is my habit, we've already talked about watching documentaries and different things. So last night I... Uh, I probably should have went to bed, but everybody was asleep. I had some quiet time. I flipped on the television, which I don't really watch a lot of TV. And there was a documentary on Netflix on Nolan Ryan. And, uh, and I, you know, all of a sudden you get sucked in and I'm watching it. And there's a lot of amazing, I recommend it to anybody who's a, who's a baseball fan. Um, and the things he went through, the things that he experienced, what a competitor he was, everything about him. It was just, you know, off the charts phenomenal. But a couple of things stuck out for me. One, obviously he had a gifted arm. So in those um, factors we discussed, he'd be the guy that, you know, he had the great arm, so of course he was going to be the pitcher. All right? But... Even at an early age, he was trying to figure out how to do this the right way. And if people remember, he first came up with the Mets. And, you know, they had the, the Kitty Core receiver and Kuzman and Gentry. And and uh, he was pitching out of the bullpen. Yeah, even in that World Series, right? Yeah. And and then he threw five innings. He couldn't believe that Gil Hodges left them in the game and, he, and they won. You know, Um. But in his mind, he was thinking, okay, I have to figure out how to do this better because, yeah, I'm wild, yeah, I'm this and that, but I have to do this better and more efficiently because I want to be a starting pitcher, okay? So his thought process was correct because he was always looking to improve, always to do things more efficiently. His work ethic and his preparation was off the charts, right? But the other thing that struck me, because I never would have thought this from watching Nolan Ryan pitch, you know, and I can remember they used to talk about the grunts and the groans, you know, that, that he'd let loose when he was cutting a fastball loose. And, and of course, the infamous when he walloped Ventura and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's There was an interesting story of the lead up before um, Dave Winfield, believe it or not, charged the mound on Ryan. and. Uh, you know, it was pretty equally contested, but Ryan's thought was next time anyone charges the amount on me, I'm going to make sure I'm the aggressor. And that led to him, you know, 
uh, and the Ventura incident, but repeatedly he discussed that there was times that he knew that he had to fix things because his rhythm and timing were off. And all he discussed in his words was the importance of his rhythm and timing. And he was always trying to find the perfect rhythm and timing so that things could flow down the mound. And yet everybody thinks, you know, one guy said, uh, yeah, they clocked Nolan Ryan at 101.9 miles an hour. Well, it wasn't 101.9 miles an hour. With today's guns or even some of the technology they had in the past, it was 108 miles an hour. Right. So you hear all those stories, you know, about the intimidator and the and the work ethic and the power and the grunts and the groans. And, and, and you're thinking that he's just there, just throwing the heck out of the ball. And here out of Nolan Ryan's mouth at the end of his career, he's talking about the importance of his rhythm and timing. And he stayed healthy, too. Yeah. In fact, he stayed healthy till he uh, um, I pretty believe he pretty sure he uh, tore his UCL. UCL eventually when he was 47 years old. Well, he had a, he had a great run, seven no hitters, and I think the next in line is Koufax with four. Right? And we'll never see that touch because guys don't throw long enough nowadays to yeah, yeah. To no hitters. The interesting thing is um, growing up, even though he was righty and Koufax was lefty, he idolized Sandy Koufax. Oh wow, well, I didn't know that. I did the documentary. I love. You mentioned two this show. I recommend both. I've seen the Nolan Ryan one. I haven't watched the Bill Russell one yet, so guys can learn a lot from from that. And with what I find interesting, Jim, I, you're to me, your complicated simplicity. I mean, we talked almost an hour and a half today, and the very simple question is, when should my child start to pitch? And I hope our audience has taken notes during this. If not, replay it again and do it, and really look at the pyramid that Jim put out there this week on Facebook, because there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of thought that goes into this. And at the end of the rainbow is really the mental and physical health of your kid. Right. And, and the thing that I can't stress enough is um, this is a personal choice. And, and I know sometimes it's tough for parents. I go through it with my 10 year old. Um, you know, he likes doing something. Well, he's ten years old. I'm gonna I'm gonna let him enjoy what he's doing, so he develops a love and a passion for what he would like to to do in the future. But sometimes you realize he, he you know maybe he's not in the uh, in the perfect environment right now for that to occur. Well, sometimes you have to let it run its course, but hopefully you can interject enough logic into the equation where. If some of these things we discussed today, uh, if these boxes haven't been checked, you can pull the reins in a little bit. Um, yeah, because at the end of the day, you're still the parent. And I think that's another message. Parents have to be the first educator of their kids and really get involved with this stuff and, and understand, you know, the environment they're in, um, you know, the factors of playing multiple sports. And even to go to your your story at the end here today where you know, it was a, it was a sloppy field and, you know, we've got to pay attention to that type of stuff as well. Cause we know these kids, these are universal fields. These kids are playing on because the people that run them want to get as many tournaments, different kinds as possible. So it's, they're usually playing on the fields with no grass nowadays. And, um, who knows if they're manicured well enough, but I think all great points today, a lot, a lot for people to unpack and chew on. 
Yeah, and you know the, the the last thing about the fields is you know sometimes remember that um, people are host a lot a lot of these organizations you know and, and we all know the names and they're not negative they're they're you know but Top Gun and this group and that group and uh, Perfect Game and all these other places right um so the so the people that host these uh, local tournaments um the next thing you know you see your your local town park is packed uh with cars and ball games going on like crazy on Saturday and Sunday uh and then you realize you you might not even know anybody there but oh there's a ball game let me let me go check it out and there's a you know a guy at the gate oh that'd be 10 bucks and you know well, really, my son just wants to go on the playground over there. No, not 10 bucks. Okay. Well, those fields that those organizations are renting, you know, they're town fields. So the uptake, the uptake on that field, the maintenance on that field, the quality of that mound, like I said, a lot of times it's, they're, you know, fiberglass artificial mounds now with the turf on them. The quality of that mound you know, that mound, my, my, that town, you know, might think that, you know, th- this mound's got, we, we've got enough money in our budget that these three mounds here on the three fields, they got to last for the next five years. Sometimes not a lot of repairs are going on. So you're hosting a tournament, your travel team's paying, you know, I don't know, 200, 300, maybe even more to come play for the weekend. The parents playing paying ten bucks to come in each day, so you're thinking you're paying a lot of money that this has got to be hopefully a first class operation, but they're renting a town facility. They're 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 not renting Yankee Stadium, you know. Where I live here, I mean, you go to you go to the high schools and middle schools around here, especially the high schools the. The high school ball fields are beautiful. Well, those travel organizations ain't renting those fields. No way. Yep. You know, I'll give a shout out to uh, one of my old teammates, Jeff Schaefer, in the Oriole organization. He runs the uh, Not Whole Not Whole Gang Foundation here in Charlotte, right? Yep. Um, at Tuscaseegee Fields. Those fields are absolutely beautiful, beautifully yeah. constructed, beautifully ma- maintained. So, if an organization comes in to rent that facility for a, for a tournament for a weekend or whatever. Um, at least, you know, you're going to be in a, a top notch quality field that you don't have to worry about. Yeah. But most of these tournaments I go to see they're they're in public town parks and, you know, the maintenance and the, you know, not that each town has a money to have a budget to where everything is, you know, going to be a artificial turf field or whatever. But even in those instances, um, uh, our town of Fort Mill and then, and the next town over Tiga K they, they just put two absolutely gorgeous complexes together, relatively new in the past year or two AstroTurf fields for, for, for town park. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We have Myrtle. We've got 10 of them, 10 right in the middle of Myrtle. Hey. Tough, tough to rent though. They don't let too many hey. people on it. Dave. Go check out the mound. Oh, I know. Okay. The mound is probably still going to leave a, a little bit to be questioned as far as the overall maintenance and the quality of that mound. Because why? 
they're being used over and over and over and over again. I mean, think about it this way. If you if you decided to uh if you decided to uh you know go train at uh any of these any of these franchise places that are telling you that, you know, let your son come here and he'll throw six to eight miles an hour faster in three months or less or four to six weeks or whatever and 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 then, you know, as your parent, you kind of get hooked and your son loves it. Now you find yourself paying $400, $500 a month. Oh, yeah, because you can train here too. And here, well, I don't need to train here. I just need a place to throw bullpens. I, I can train at home. You know? No, no, it's 400 And all of a sudden, you're, you're paying all this money and you stepped into that facility. And, um, you know, the mounds were, were horrible. You know, too small, too big, or no rubber. I mean, you would eventually, I'm not paying that money for that, but we don't think that way. We don't process that information that way when we go to these tournaments. Yeah. Now you'll see those fiberglass mounds out there a ton. Yeah. So yeah, not a big fan of those myself. And I know, uh, I complain. I, I'm not, I don't like the, uh, all purpose, all dirt fields, that kind of old fashioned. In fact, as we were on the show, I will be playing, uh, at, Shapes Field at least one game. I know that maybe two um, next weekend, Labor Day weekend with our team. We got two two there possibly, and I agree. It's, and that's the home of Queens College uh, or Queens University um, yes. down the D two program. So it's good enough for a university team, and they certainly take care of that very well. So we um, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll get a chance to, and we'll be close, not too far from you either. Hopefully, we can get a, get a chance to see you down there. Yeah, sounds good. Would be so, really good. Well, how can our audience find you, support you, if they want to bring their kid to you? To, and I recommend it highly, um, without question. How can they find you? Yeah, the easiest way to start is is my web website, www.rooneybaseball.com. And through the website, you know, you can – I keep the website up right now because – People can see all my background information and different things and references and all. Um, but it's also the easiest way to communicate. I mean, you go right through the website. It sends me a message. I, I get it immediately, and we can work from there. Um, or just email me at uh, coachjim at rooneybaseball.com. And then there's always the Facebook page. And um, the thing I like about the Facebook page is that um, – I'm not necessarily on there to um, um, to regularly like promote who I am type of thing or or buy my product or my service or anything like that. I'm trying to get information out there so that it can help people, just like this podcast, and uh, and also um, for them to get a better understanding of who I am and, and you know how seriously I. I take this as far as trying to help young kids. Um, and like I said, it all started with a thought many, many years ago. I'm, I'm just trying to help young kids yeah. not experience what, what I experienced in my lifetime. Um, and if we can do that for just a few of them, then, uh, I mean, that's good enough for me. Yeah. I think that's, that's one of the areas that we connect in as well. And, um, you're invaluable to the game of baseball at all levels. And I hope our audience continues to take advantage of this podcast and, and does reach out to you. I know I value our relationship and I appreciate the information you share with me both publicly and privately. So um, 
if if at the end of the day there's just an audience of one for us, then then I'm I'm all for that. But I, I know this is reaching tens of thousands of families out there. So we appreciate what you do for the network and this show, Jim. So thank you so much for for being you and being unique. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, for our audience out there, thanks for your continued support of our uh, all of our shows, specifically Total Rubber. Uh, make sure that you get on the, the page, give Jim five stars, stay, write some nice comments because we'll battle those analytics of the podcast world just like we do in baseball today. And uh, with that, just want to thank you again, Jim, for your contributions here and not just to the network, but to, to baseball in general. And look forward to possibly seeing you next weekend. Um, with the two boys out there and bring bring your two boys by and maybe grab a bite to eat though. But thanks again for all you do. Have a good weekend, guys. Thanks, Dave. Take care, everybody. Thank you.